I've come down to Sissinghurst Castle in Kent um, so that Juliet Nicholson can tell me about her book, A House Full of Daughters, which we've we've just been chatting about. It's not a house full of daughters, is it, Juliet? No, it's not a house full of daughters. It's a house full of daughters. It's a place full of daughters, whether it's a house or a book. It's full of daughters. That's what I've been writing about. I've been writing about daughters in my family. And how all women are daughters, whether they're only children or sisters or they become mothers or whether they don't. They're all daughters. It's the one thing that every single woman on the planet has in common. We might be an aunt, a mother, a granny, a friend, a cousin. We could be any or all of those things or none of them, but we are absolutely guaranteed to be a daughter. Sons are more, um, not necessarily isolated, but more individuals. And that daughters have been encouraged to be part of a kind of grouping. And therein sometimes lies the problem because yes, when yes. you want your independence and you want to go off and be like a son can be, you may have a bit of a struggle. Well, that comes across unbelievably clearly in the very opening of the book. I mean, this goes right back, doesn't it? It goes right back to, I'm going to get this wrong, your grandmother's grandmother's that's grandmother. Abs- Is that right? No. no How no, many that, great, great, great? Absolutely right. It's my grandmother's grandmother, a couple of greats. Um, And her name was Pepita, and she was born in Malaga, in the south of Spain, uh, in 1830. And she was born to a washerwoman and a uh, street barber. And her father died when she was very little, and her mother was a very feisty woman, ambitious for her little girl, who showed very early on this incredible talent for dancing. And so with Pepita's mother's help, Pepita became, the mother went out to work, saved and saved, washed and washed a lot of clothes, washed and washed a lot of sheets, uh, did a lot of mending, saved up for her daughter, sent her to flamenco school. And Pepita became the most famous, she was a superstar Mm. flamenco dancer uh, by the time she was 20. Everybody had heard of Pepita. But her mother then did sort of terrible things to her, didn't she? Um, Although, I have to say, without one of them, I mean, your story wouldn't sort of, as it were, kind of exist because she got married and her mother, not approving of this marriage, told her new husband that his wife had been unfaithful to her and told her daughter that her husband had been unfaithful to her and the marriage was wrecked. Yeah, Pepita's mother, her name was Catalina, she was she was a she was an absolute meddlesome so and so and when her daughter became very successful catalina's ambitions for pepita increased even further and thought that maybe pepita could have a marriage with even somebody from say a royal family which would have put the icing on the cake for catalina Trouble was, Pepita had already married her dancing teacher in order to get a reduced rate for the dancing lessons. They were Catholic, divorce was out of the question. So Catalina sort of took it into her own hands, as mothers sometimes do, (laughs) and thought that she could undo the arranged marriage. Um, But actually, uh, she she never did. Pepita never did uh, divorce her her dancing teacher, her husband. 
Um, but she, instead she fell in love with an Englishman, um, an English diplomat um, called Lionel Sackville West. And the older. The older. Because there are two Lionels in the there book. There are two Lionels in the book. Yes, yes, there are. But the first Lionel, the older Lionel, um, was an unmarried diplomat who uh, saw Pepita on the stage with her extraordinary hair that went almost sort of down below her bottom um, and her incredibly sexy dance moves. I mean, it was absolutely outrageous <laughs> the way she moved around the stage. Men would pull flowers from their wives. This is the um, middle of the 19th century. In the middle of the 19th century, on the great stages of Europe, in Stuttgart, in Vienna, in Berlin, in London, in Paris, Pepita would take the place by storm, and men in the audience would grab the flowers from their uh, wives' beautiful hair arrangements, so they would wear fresh flowers in their hair and hull the flowers onto the stage to their wives' absolute rage. Anyway, one of these men was um, Lionel Sackville West, who uh, was smitten with uh, Pepita, went round, knocked on her hotel door, found out where she was staying, and basically moved in, and together they had uh, seven children. Despite never being able to marry because she wasn't divorced. Completely illegitimate. Incredible. Children. Um, and he was a man of some position. Mm. He was uh, uh, it, well, uh, in the um, Foreign Office, as it were, in, in Paris and in Madrid, and um, subsequently in Washington. He was a top man in, in, in the diplomatic service. Um, but he got away with it somehow. It is incredible. And I mean, you, you obviously talk about this in the book. and how, But they sort of just did it, didn't they? They just lived the way that they wanted to live. And, they did. you know, I, I mean, mean there were there were problems with that for them, but there were. I mean, it was sort of okay for him, really, because mm. he could swan around visiting Pepita whenever he wished. It was less easy for her. First of all, she had this increasing brood of children, like a little mini kindergarten by the end of it. Um, but also, society. Um, with a capital S in the uh, small town that she'd um, moved to in the south of France, gossiped, mm. disapproved, uh, knew that she was an unmarried woman, although she had little calling cards calling herself Countess West. They were completely bogus cards because mm. she was an unmarried unmarried mother. It sounds like something children. out of Henry James, doesn't it? It's very, it's... very Henry James or... Maupassant or something, yeah. or Balzac, or if I'm getting that right. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, it's a terrific story. It's a terrific It's a rip-roaring way to start the book. I mean, you know, there are terrible things that happen. I mean, what the terrible thing that happens is that Pepita dies in childbirth, mm. um, leaving your great-grandmother, yes. who's very young child I mean and she was sitting there with her mother's body yes. and she was what was she sort of seven or eight she was, she was nine years old mm. um, and uh, she was the oldest of she wasn't the oldest child she was the second oldest child but she was the oldest daughter and so it fell to her at this very very young age to care for her, these motherless uh, siblings of mm. hers well the father Lionel 
carried on with his diplomatic career and and um, swanned off to uh, take up his duties in um, Argentina and um, didn't even barely, barely returned to visit mm. all his children, who went to live with the local station master and his mother, who took them in and looked after them. Lionel sent money, but he never sent himself yeah, and yes. his love. These unorthodox relationships, or, or occasionally people just bucking against the orthodoxy, sometimes more complicated and painful human situations. I mean, they unspool throughout this book. It's a baton passed from generation to generation, isn't it? And I think we should talk a little bit about where we're standing, because the original sort of seat of the family was Noel, wasn't it? But then we're in Sissinghurst, and that is where your grandmother... And her husband, Harold Nicholson, just came and fell in love with. Yes, and Vita was um, born at Knoll, at this huge 365-room house in Seven Oaks in Kent, um, to uh, Pepita's daughter, Victoria, and um, her cousin, who she had married, who was also called Lionel. And Vita was the only child of that marriage. And she... Um, for a long time, was the the darling daughter, the darling child of Noel. But she was a girl, and she couldn't inherit. Mm. That was the law. Uh, that some in some places still is the law that the girl doesn't get it. The nearest living relation that is male is the person who inherited, who inherits these great estates, these great houses, and so Vita. After her father died um, in 1928, uh, was suddenly divorced, as it were, from uh, this place that it's she loved. Staggering, isn't it? When any. you think of, and cast out of your home, really, to all intents and purposes. Outrageous! <laughs> I stand here saying that it was. It really very close to broke her break to coming to break her heart, came very close to breaking her heart. And uh, yet, she was married to this fantastic man, Harold, my grandfather, and together they found a, not exactly a replacement, but somewhere, itself a broken place, Sissinghurst, was almost a ruin when in 1930 Vita it had been used as a poorhouse, hadn't it? Had it had become a poorhouse. It had been a great, great house. Uh, it had been built, really. The great house had been built for the arrival of uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth I. And we are standing now in one of the rooms that was one of the few rooms that remain that was a, 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 a room built for the purpose of Queen Elizabeth I's visit in um, 1563. And... Uh, it is actually a lovely room. It's, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's, it's in a, what is really a, a kind of small cottage, you know, is not part of the sort of great grandeur, mm. um, surrounded by, by the gardens for which Sissinghurst is so famous. But you come upstairs to this bedroom, which is entirely brick, raw brick uh, on the walls, wonderful tapestries, a, a bed from I don't know when that the bed, bed is comes from, from. Noel. the bed is the bed wow. is, is Vita's childhood bed the bed is the bed she was born in 
um, and she brought it with her to to Sissinghurst when she came. Um, she didn't die in it. She died in another part of the of the house over in the near the White Garden in the little cottage at the White Garden. She died there, um, but this was her bed, and this was the room that she. Um, brought her lovers to my my grandfather's bedroom is next door <laughs> so this is this I is think you say in the book that their marriage had a lot of generous spaces in it yes yes let there be spaces in your togetherness it's the great Khalil Gibran quote from the prophet which was Vita's sort of great mantra really let there be spaces in your togetherness and actually it's a jolly good I think it's a jolly good thing to follow I, 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 I approve of that Let well it worked spaces. extremely well for them didn't it, it worked for them it worked for them and uh, yeah this room is um, part of the old house so this what is now appears to be a cottage was actually a corner of the original mansion that was built for um, the arrival of Queen Elizabeth I and the great attraction for Vita of this whole place of Sissinghurst was that it itself was something of a place crying out for help, crying out for rescue, as she was after she was denied uh, Knoll. And so gradually she and Harold together began to restore it, not really in a conventional way that you'd think of restoring a house now. And she, she wouldn't have any plaster put on the brickwork in this room. She thought the brickwork, with the, all its sort of beautiful... Well, it is beautiful, isn't it? And, 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 and russets and all the lovely colours of really old brick was more lovely than having plaster over it. But what they really did, this great wonderful sort of creative act that they did was of course the garden itself outside the brick in the garden on the earth and um, the the garden here at Sissinghurst is I mean for me I've known it all my life and it is it's it is it's the place I go to when I feel uh, in need of some sort of um, reassurance some sort of stability it's represents that to me even when I can't actually physically be here it's where I go to in my mind because it's continuous because I've known it forever because although it changes with the seasons obviously the essence of the place is the one that I knew when I was very very little and I find that extraordinarily Comforting. Shall we go there? Shall we go Shall and have we a look at the, the garden? garden? Yes, absolutely. So now we are sitting on a bench, sort of in the tower, at the bottom of the tower, which is, of course, the highest point of Sissinghurst. Yes, that's right. It's, it's, um, it was built again for the visit of Elizabeth I. And uh, it was built as a hunting tower because Elizabeth I loved to hunt. And um, remarkably, even though the Battle of Britain was fought in the skies above Sissinghurst, the tower, um, which is 70 foot high, is completely un undamaged. Mm. And the first floor of this beautiful tower is um, was Vita's sanctuary. Yes, we've just walked up to look at look through the, the sort of wrought iron grill um, into what looks like the most, I mean, almost sort of womb-like kind of writing space. 
absolutely. I mean, her great friend, Virginia Woolf, uh, famously said, you need a room of your own, and that was Vita's room of her own. And in Vita's lifetime, nobody went up there except for her very, very close friends, her invited friends. My father, for example, uh, went up there. He thinks t t twice in his life, maybe. He'd stand at the bottom where we're sitting really? and just shout out, lunch is ready, and she'd come down. But he wouldn't go up because it was too... Private, private. Yeah. Your father, Nigel, was Vita and Harold's younger son. And so, of course, you came here, as you were saying, as a child. Can you remember some of your early visits? Can you remember first coming here? Yes, we came here often to visit my grandparents, Vita and Harold. And uh, we never really stayed the night. There weren't any spare bedrooms. It here. seems an incredible <laughs> thing to say when you say, I'm just going to a castle, but we can't stay because there's no spare bedroom. <laughs> but they, cho they chose it that way. And it's not really a castle, it's a ruin. Yes, yes. It, it, it's called Castle because it was once a prison for French prisoners and, and chateau, or big house, translated to castle. So it's never really a no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't mislead. And in fact, you know, where we've just been standing and, and looking at the bedrooms, it's, it's a cottage, isn't it? It is really well, a, a that, cottage. That part of it, actually, um, is uh, the corner of the ruin of a once, this once enormous great house. But luckily, in one way, luckily, there's no enormous great house because the upkeep of that enormous great house would be far prohibitive for Vita and Harold, I think. Um, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a place that, um, for me, since childhood, has always been, if I say magical, it sounds corny, but it does have, to me, the absolute sort of essence of, um, of, of escape, of sanctuary, of, uh, it's very, very beautiful. Uh, there is this incredible garden that runs through it, but it's also simply home, and it has been home to me since um, Vita's death in 1962, and she left it to my father, her son, and we came straight away to live here, and I have never not had a bedroom here. My bedroom is in the bigger part of the house over there, um, since I was seven. Shall we have a wander through the garden? As you say, I mean, in many ways, Sissinghurst is more garden than anything, isn't it? You know, it is um, an incredible space. And it's got this very famous thing about it. It's the idea of rooms, isn't it? The idea of a garden arranged in rooms. That's right. I mean, instead of um, Vita lavishing her attention and indeed money on the interiors of Sissinghurst, which although beautiful, are pretty rough and ready. Um, I mean, there was no, never any sort of anything like central heating. For a long time, there weren't really any windows or glass in the windows. But the outside, she put all her creative and imaginative energy. Um, and Harold, too, all his incredibly... Um, gifted sense of, of, of planning and structuring and laying out a space. We're standing now in the White Garden, which is um, the most famous of all the Sissinghurst garden rooms. 
there are um, maybe six, six different garden rooms and many, many different enclosed spaces on top of that. And the white garden, uh, people come to the white garden, they propose. <laughs> <laughs> they, we're uh, standing sort of under a kind of a, a sort of pergola at the minute, aren't we? I imagine it stand- happens here. We're standing under the great white rose, um, uh, Rose Mulligatawny, although it's just been renamed and it's now called. We're peering it at her. It is Mulligatawny. 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 Isn't that soup? <laughs> <laughs> Not you wouldn't want a rose like a Mulligatawny <laughs> soup, no. I don't think. Um, and um, it is a series of uh, flower beds divided up by box hedge. Um, and when I was little and I was the height of the box hedge, which I suppose must be about two foot, two and a half foot high. <laughs> so when you were tiny. And I was little, my hand was the same, at the same level as the box hedge. And so even now, if I run my hand along the feathery edge of the box hedge, I can get that sensation back of being seven years old again. Um, and you can see a few... Uh, very brave crocuses, croci, uh, poking their little heads up, and you can see, in fact, is that over in the corner? That's is that a rose, right in the, that corner there? You can tell I'm not quite the gardener. Oh, the hellebores. Hellebore. Yeah, the hellebores. Not a rose, everybody. Well, it's a hellebore. Well, well, they're 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 just they're, they are they are, they do appear actually at this time. But I'm not very any of this either but along with the daffodils the hellebores appear of all different colours and yes the white garden is pretty much devoted to not just white but cream and grey and green very soothing very soothing soothing. and very romantic I mean it is a bit of a wedding garden quite a lot of people ask to have their ashes buried in here too really the uh, building that um, is beside the white garden is called the priest's house and Vita and Harold uh, used that for their um, dining room so they slept and ate and worked all in different yes. like a collegiate college yes. like, a, like, a, like an Oxford or Cambridge college yes it's, it's got that kind of, of feel so that was the kitchen and, and the dining room and then that was my bedroom when I first came and that was Adam's there were little apple stalls and we really are standing outside what really is, is a kind of tiny little cottage in a way, mm, isn't it? Mm, with its mm. its leaded windows mm. and little kind of quaint door door knocker. I mean, it's just it's it's fairy tale in a way, isn't it? It's quite sort of. I mean, not to you. I'm describing things that's so recognisable from your childhood, but of course, part of the sort of magic of that is that it 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 was a very unusual childhood. Well, of course, because it, it wasn't to you. It wasn't yeah. to me. It wasn't to me. But I'll tell you, it was. It was. I do know it was, and I did know then. I think I knew then. Was that it was, uh, in some ways, in many, many ways, it was an extraordinarily <sighs> piece of luck that mm. I should be born into the opportunity to grow up in a place like this and to allow this place to sort of seep into my, into my, you know into my bones in the way that that it has and will always stay there um so it was um yeah of course i was lucky 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 um (laughs) there is of course 
is alongside the luck, a vast amount of work that goes into somewhere like this. I mean, we're standing uh, now just looking across an amazing sort of extended patch of bluebells. It just is kind of wonderful. Um, but keeping these gardens in order must be some extraordinary yeah, there task. Are about, um, there are about eight full-time gardeners and a great army of volunteers. Yes, you were telling me that you've got how many... It's in the hundreds. In the hundreds of volunteers. volunteers who come here, and um, especially in the summer when it's a deadheading and all of the intensity of gardening is stepped up. Um, In the winter, the garden is essentially closed. The property is open, but the garden is closed because the gardeners need to do all their winter work. And, you know, there's not anything to see in in a garden during the winter months but in the summer yeah it um it it becomes much busier and there's a another thing about Sittinghurst as well as the garden rooms which is the um the colors there are various color themes that Vita mm. sort mm. of invented really it's her thing so that there's the white garden that we were just in we're just going to walk up towards the purple border there's a cottage garden which is essentially orange and yellow and um, so these these are the other things that she does and then the other thing with as with any garden is that different times of year um, there are different um, plants that make their make their appearance so early on now it's the spring flowers and it's daffodils in the orchard and then later on you get azaleas and um, later on than that it's rose time and so on. We're standing very near an absolutely extraordinary camellia. Yeah it is. I mean it's just you hardly believe that we're sort of in the in the well coming out anyway of winter but still in it certainly today Um, and just this kind of you know, sorry, it's a cliche, riot, a riot of pink flowers. It's a riot of pink, a very sort of yeah. delicate pink flowers, yeah. beautiful. Yeah, this is the very early part of the garden here. It's called Delos, this, this little area here, near the priest's house. And now we're just walking up into the upper courtyard where um, the purple border is just beginning to sort of make its impression. And now I'm just going to have a quick look in because it's the, the library, library isn't yes. it? Yes, well, it's now called the library. We used to call it the big room. Um, <laughs> because it is indeed oh, a big room. It's the only big room. <laughs> yes, it is. And actually, for Vita and Harold. The big farmhouse. No, that was essentially this room was a. Um, sort of furniture <laughs> depository for all the stuff that Peter had managed to purloin <laughs> didn't have anywhere else to put so these are knoll mirrors that you see the silver mirrors, knoll sconces knoll paintings I mean extraordinary um, grandeur to some of those pieces, absolutely beautiful that amazing kind of I suppose sort of oriental piece of furniture Yes, c- collected from all sort of different different places, um, but um, uh, gathered some of it by Lady Sackville, Vita's mother, um, who uh, inherited a big part of the Wallace collection through one of her lovers. <laughs> and um, at the at the back, rather f- fun, which I love, are these two silver. 
um, an ebony stands um, on a desk at the back of the big room, and nobody ever knows what they are, and actually they're wig stands. <laughs> so when, when judges get very hot, they prop their wigs You've on You've got to have somewhere to put your wig. You've obviously got a wig, need to have a wig stand. You know, no home is complete without a wig stand. And we are this, oh, I mean, as the library, the name the library suggests, you're absolutely lined with books. Um, very, very elderly looking, many of them, but I just amusing to spot a little clutch of paperbacks, penguin paperbacks. Yes, up there. but these books actually, believe it or not, in this huge kind of great wall of books in this room, they are review copies. They are all Harold and Vita's books that they reviewed Goodness. over the. Uh, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. So you've got first edition of Brideshead, you know, all, first editions of all E.M. Forster, because those were the review copies, you know. So um, that's what these books are. And Harold's own library is in um, the um, South Cottage, and Vita's own library is in the Tower. And this is their joint so pooled library. They're working, working their books. review copy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as a reviewer, I do sort of believe it. I mean, they mount up at kind of yeah. extraordinary exactly, pace, don't they? <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, so if you hang on to them, Alex, you'll, 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 they'll all become very, very they'll, valuable. They'll be a bright so do you think? Yeah. Yeah. That would be nice. Yeah. So we've come back to the cottage now because, listeners, it's not actually that warm. So we've come to have a, a piping hot cup of tea and warm up. Um, and... Juliet, I'm, I'm just going to ask you a little bit more about the book. We had this wonderful tour around Sissinghurst um, and talked about how much it, it means to you and meant to you since childhood. Writing a book of this sort, of course, when you're writing about uh, your great-great-grandmother and, you know, exciting things like sort of flamenco dancing and the rest of it, uh, it's important it's your family, but it's not family you knew but then, of course, you get on to the fact of writing about your own mum and dad, your daughters, and that's all in the book too. And I wondered, when it came to those more up-to-date and very personally direct and very directly personal matters, how did that feel to you? Well, the book, um, I, was, I started off wanting to write about uh, women. It then came to writing about daughters and then sort of refined a bit further to writing about daughters in my family. And so as I went back uh, generations uh, to my grandmother's grandmother, it was only really when I got to my grandmother that it began to tip from biography into memoir, first-hand memoir, mm. or in a sense autobiography, sort of almost without me really realising it because I had memories. Um, my grandmother died when I was um, seven, so I had memories of her, first-hand memories, which I wanted to put down because um, Vita has been written about so much, but largely about her as, um, as a gardener, as mm. a writer, um, as a lover, as a wife, mm. but not as a grandmother. And I had memories that I wanted to pin down and put down really for myself but also to give another perspective on this woman famous for the things that she's famous for and then um, as uh, I continued with the next generation um, my mother next generation of daughters 
uh, I suddenly realised that I was into full-blown autobiography. Mm. So in a sense, the book is a sort of book of, of two halves, or anyway, certainly biography becomes autobiography. I am really glad that I had the chance to go in-depth into understanding people, particularly my mother, who I understood so little, uh, trying to understand why they behaved the way they did, what was it that had shaped them, and what was it that dictated their behaviour, uh, both uh, in the wider context of, 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 of their lives, but also specifically in connection with me. Yes. I mean, you have to go through then some obviously painful things, you know, I mean... Your mother was very ill when you were a very small child, wasn't she? And so, you know, there was a sort of difficulty very early on. And then, you know, life wasn't altogether easy following that, was it? Yeah, my mum, she, she, uh, she married um, my father, not really for reasons that I would advise my own daughter to marry. Mm. She married because... Uh, she was flattered by a man who needed a wife because he was a member of parliament and in his constituency duties it was expected uh, that you should be married mm. and good God forbid in the 1950s that you should be anything other than a full-blooded heterosexual male and um, my father was 36 and he needed a wife and and he had very little experience I mean, of love affairs. Yes, he he was incredibly uh, reticent in in terms of um, he was he was a shy man, uh, confident when he had the um, sort of structure of of of, of behaviour sort of imposed around him. So I mean, he was a brilliant lecturer. He could talk about. Henry VIII, with tremendous authority and confidence, but come to talk about himself, or to even try to think about himself, himself, he fell apart. Mm. He was mm. shy, reserved, and insecure. Um, one might say no wonder, having grown up with parents who themselves were sort of fairly, fairly distant in a way, particularly his mother. Anyway, so he married my mother, I can't really say, for more than convenience, although he pretended at the time, because he was a great romantic, always quoting Jane Austen at me, that <laughs> <laughs> um, um, uh, he was in love with her. But he didn't really know how to be in love. Mm. He didn't dare let himself go. And my mother, who was incredibly pretty and innocent and um, had grown up between the two wars and left school when she was 14, had very little formal education um, and had had very um, sort of limited intellectual experience, suddenly found herself with this sort of blue stocking of a man mm. that she was married to. And it was sort of okay for a little bit, and um, 
my father went through the motions of being a romantic new husband. And indeed, uh, a child was conceived and born, me. Um, but then after that, she got tuberculosis. And for um, about three quarters of a, of a year, when I was really only a few months old, she wasn't allowed to go anywhere near me. She mm. was kept in isolation. Um, she went back to live in her parents' house. And I was brought up by nannies and, in a way, my buttoned-up dad. I mean, your dad, despite that emotional reticence, I mean, adored his children, didn't he, you and, you and your brother? He, he did, he did. He was, uh, he, was, um, he was a really fun dad. He was a wonderful dad. He was... Um, he wanted to stretch us. He wanted to be proud of us. And so he was quite hard on us in that way. He wanted us, there were always, we were always being given courage tests, both physical and emotional, things that Goodness. he, goals to be aimed for. And if we failed them, he was hard on us. I mean, I was known as Little Miss Can't because I'd give up too quickly. Uh, but when, if I did push it through and see it through to the end, whatever it may be, whether it was climbing a wall or pitching a tent or writing a story that he thought was good, he was full of praise. And why I wanted to please him, it, it, it mattered to me a lot. And that relationship him. more so with your dad than with your, your mum? In our family, quite often, the father is the better parent. He's, it just seems to have worked out that way. I don't know if it's a coincidence or what. But uh, it's easier, in a way, for a daughter and a father to gel. That with a mother and a daughter, there can be, at least in our family, there has been a sort of inbuilt uh, competition or even as the mother grows older and the daughter suddenly becomes adult and starts achieving things, um, a jealousy, a sort of inbuilt jealousy. And it, it's a sort of setup for tension. Mm. Whereas the, the father and the daughter, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a difference in the sexes. There's a difference between the two of them. And so that competitive streak is 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 not there. Tends not to be there anymore. Of course, when we write about our families directly or anybody close to us, you know, close personal relationship, there is always inevitably that feeling of some kind of transgression, isn't there? Some sort of fear of exposing something that should remain private, of harm being done. I mean, and I don't know really whether there could be any memoirist who hasn't felt like that. Did that feel difficult to you? Was it something you needed to overcome? I thought about um, whether I would be um, betraying secrets uh, long, long, long and hard. I discussed it very uh, carefully um, with my brother, Adam. And uh, I knew about this feeling um, because my father had gone through it when he'd written Portrait of a Marriage, which mm -hmm. um, 
was uh, partly written by his mother, Vita, a confession of the love affair that she had with a woman, with Violet Trefusis, in the 1920s, which nearly finished her marriage. And the book was um, then sort of amplified and explained in part by my father. And it was published uh, 10 years after Vita died. And my father went through agonies of um, questioning himself as to whether he had betrayed his mother. But in Vita's um, uh, memoir, unpublished during her lifetime, she wrote about this business of her, her own uh, gayness, um, that she hoped one day there would be a world which would accept such things, and that if her story could in some way go to explaining and helping that world to arrive, then she wished it to be known. Mm. Um, for me, when it came to writing um, about uh, my parents, um, my father, well, I loved him so much and I was so close to him that really he is a hero in my book. I don't feel in any way that I've betrayed him. And of course, we, you know, we would have rows. He loved John Major and I loved Tony Blair, you know, we would... <laughs> We had our differences, um, but and he could be very critical. But in retrospect, that criticism was has toughened me. And, and it came from a place of love. And it came from a place of love, exactly that. And I wanted him to be proud of, of me. And uh, so he, you know, he's he is he was a, he was a wonderful parent, despite or because of the way he pushed me and doubted me uh, even the doubts I now feel were the were constructive my mother we knew so little about my mother she didn't talk about her life or if she did she got swamped by all this Nicholson stuff and she if I could change something I'd I'd get her back now to sit down here at this kitchen table and just say, tell me about it. Mm. What was it like? I really want to know. And I always say that now to anybody I meet. Talk to your parents before it's too mm. late. Ask them. Ask them about their lives before you existed. Ask them about their parents. Get to know your parents. It's so important. I seek out old people like a kind of horrible sort of homing device. You know, they run from the old <laughs> people, you know, as fast as they can. They are Julia, you know, just gathering coffee. But I'm not. I just really want to know. And so my mother, I knew so little about her. She was, she, ha she lived, it seemed to me, sadly. And I felt... For both myself and somehow, even though she died nearly 30 years ago, I wanted to give her a voice. I never heard her. So that was my impulse for going to write about her. There was no anger in it and there was no vengefulness for what I did perceive to be not very good or absent parenting mm. Mm. Um, 
And I didn't know where it would lead me. I didn't know how I'd feel at the end. I didn't know if I would end up feeling angry, resentful, sorry for myself. How did you end up feeling? Actually, I've ended up feeling just, I feel, I feel so much compassion for her. I cannot bear it that she didn't have the, the opportunities, the chances, or the people to listen to her in the way that I have. She just, there just wasn't anybody paying any attention. She was a, a, a woman um, born between two brothers and two wars. She was, she was lost. She was neglected. She was almost abandoned. She was semi-irrelevant. And that situation that was a childhood, the childhood position that she was in, didn't really shift very much when she became an adult. My father was unkind to her, dismissive of her, judgmental of her, um, patronizing. He was not, he may have been a wonderful father, but he was not at all a good husband. And my poor mother didn't know where to turn to, didn't really know how to ask for help. And she tried all sorts of things to try to make herself feel better about herself. Hobbies, you know, she, 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 she even tried gardening when she lived here at Sissinghurst, but none of them could she quite sustain. She had so little self-confidence. And I understand that myself, because I went through a long period of feeling that too. And luckily for me, there were people, particularly Adam, my brother, and Sarah, his wife, who looked out for me and helped me to overcome that. Like Mama, she started to drink and she couldn't stop. And she died, she was 58 when she died. And I remember when I was turning 58, thinking, I feel so alive. Mm. This is the same mm. age as my mother died and I'm living, I'm in the middle of my life. I have so much to live for. And she, she was dead at this age. It seems inconceivable to me and sad beyond belief. So how I end it up and how I feel right now sitting talking to you, Alex, is, is sad, just really sad for her. Wished I could have saved her. Wished I could have done something for her. Wished her life could have been It's maybe something that daughters often feel, isn't it? Um, maybe sons too, but uh, I think that generations do not only mourn for their losses in the sense of uh, missing them, but also mourn for the lives that they had and the things that didn't happen. Mm. I guess that writing is, is, is an act of, in some way, trying to, trying to preserve something and tell a story there, and you have done that. Mm. I mean, I think for women, of course, it is particularly, it's particularly sort of relevant that, um, that sense of, of, of wishing something else for them, because each generation up until mine and my children have, have been given more for yes, goodness, yes. For goodness, 
Um, and you do, yet. in fact, end with your own daughters and, indeed, with your granddaughter. Yes, well, of course. Um, my daughters are... I mean, I would never have written this if I hadn't had their blessing. <laughs> blessing, encouragement, understanding, support. You know, they are... They are it. And then, and then <laughs> one of them, Clemmie, has, has her own daughter now, Imogen, who's two, Emma. And, you know, just when I thought, oh, that's it, there was suddenly something more. Emma. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I write this in the book. Her first word, her very first intelligible word about anything that came... In her, into her life, even when I walked into the room, was to say, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, to me, that's the best word. If, even if she'd never said anything else after that, wow would have been enough for me. <laughs> Juliet, thank you so much for, for having me here today. It's just been, been wonderful and uh, telling me about the really moving and absorbing and, and wonderful House Full of Daughters. It's been a real treat to talk to you, Alex.